I thought that the best introduction to what we're going to study tonight in Acts 5 is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. So would you turn there with me, please? Keep your finger on Acts 5. Because what is happening in Acts chapter 5 is what you could call a landmark case. In fact, the persecution of the early church in the first few chapters of the book of Acts becomes a role model for those other Christians who are persecuted after this. Now, persecution happened to be a way of life in the early church. Today, it's something we hear about in other countries. We don't have it in the United States as they had it back then. Yes, we have our share of it, but certainly not to the extent that, the say, the Roman Christians had when 10 million of them were killed. And so the way these Christians handled the persecution in Acts 5 became a role model for Christians after that. And in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 14, we read, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea. And that's what we're reading about in Acts 5. Persecution in the church at Judea. In Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. He's saying you are imitating the Jews who were persecuted by fellow Jews in Judea. They were the role model. The way they handled persecution, you have followed. And so it's a landmark case, what we're reading in Acts chapter 5. And as we said last week, you could entitle this whole section of chapter 5, Truth and Consequences. This is part two tonight. The truth is preached, and whenever the truth is preached, there are consequences. There are repercussions. As we said last week, every action will produce an equal and opposite reaction. When you preach the gospel with great zeal, expect to get fired upon. And that's what we see happening here in this section. In verse 22 of Acts 5, we are told, But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported. We should probably stop and just quickly backtrack what has happened. The early church preached the gospel out in the streets. Because there were results, the leaders were angry. In their anger, they passed a law. Thou shalt not preach the gospel. It is a law that the early church flagrantly and deliberately violated. In violating that law, many miracles also happened to testify that Jesus is alive. It wasn't a myth. Because of the miracles, many more people were following Jesus. This doubly upset the leaders and called them for a special meeting. Then they threw them in jail, and this is where we pick up. They've been in prison, and as you know, the Lord sprung them through an angel. An angel came in the middle of the night, unlocked the doors, and says, get out and do it again. I'm giving you the official sanction to preach the gospel in Jerusalem. I don't care what those jokers say. Go for it. 
And so they're all out there at the commission of this angel. And in verse 22, when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. You see, these leaders and guards had no idea that the prisoners were freed. The way that it happened, it happened so miraculously that the guards are still standing post. The leaders come with the keys to unlock the door. It looks like nothing has happened, but they open the door and the most important prisoners in jail are gone. You can imagine the looks on their faces as they stared into an empty prison cell. I'm thinking, what are we going to tell the uh, bigwigs, the chief priests, when they find out about this? We're history. What's absolutely funny to me is that they were thrown in jail because of miracles. And it was the miracles that brought people to Jesus and the preaching of the gospel, of course. They were trying to stop miracles from happening because they were Sadducees. They didn't believe in them. In trying to stop miracles from happening, they produced more. Thrown into prison, an angel miraculously sprung them so that the guards are still hanging out in front wondering what's going on. And so now in verse 24. Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. What a contrast between the Sanhedrin, if you're unfamiliar with who they are, they are the 70 ruling bigwigs of the Jewish religion at that time. And what a contrast between these fellas and the disciples, the apostles. Now the Sanhedrin were educated. They had theological training. They were ordained. They were important, but they had no power. These apostles were fishermen, poor, untrained, ignorant men. That's what the Sanhedrin said about them. But walked in great power. The Sanhedrin tried to protect their lives. Protect Judaism. Keep things status quo. Keep their lives comfortable. While the disciples, on the other hand, were willing to risk their lives, their own necks, to preach the gospel. These guys were unstoppable. No matter what the Jews tried to do, no matter what the Romans tried to do, you couldn't stop these band of men and women. They were sold out for the gospel. Now, there's a reason why persecution erupted in the early church. Listen to what Jesus said when he got his disciples together on one occasion. But all of these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know him who sent me. Being ignorant of God and ignorant of God's ways, they persecuted the early church. Remember Jesus hung on the cross and the first thing he said was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. They're ignorant. They don't know you. In their ignorance, they're acting this way. They were ignorant of God, even though they claimed to be the leaders of the traditions and the leaders of spirituality for the nation. They were ignorant. And we see here a kingdom clash, is what I call it. That's basically what persecution is. You get the kingdom of darkness, controlled by the devil, opposed to the gospel, and you get the kingdom of God, run by Jesus Christ, 
filled with people like you who love Jesus. And you get both of those kingdoms together and you're going to have fireworks. They rub up against each other and you're going to have persecution. That's why Jesus said they do this to you because they haven't known the Father, the one who sent me. As I read through this chapter, I find that between chapter 4 and chapter 5, even though they've been threatened and even though in this chapter they are beaten, their convictions are unchanged. They don't weasel out of it. They don't try to be diplomatic and say, you know, uh, maybe we can strike a compromise here. We're getting tired of being hassled, threatened, beaten. So tell us what you want and we'll strike up a compromise. They didn't do that. They believed what Jesus said, that you can't serve two masters. You're going to love one and hate the other. They were sold out to Jesus. They had made a decision. It was too late to turn back now. But you know what? There is a way for you to get out of persecution. You can weasel out of persecution by not making a stand for Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that you should be obnoxious. And some people are very good at that. Some people are good at being absolutely weird and strange and obnoxious to people. And they do it in the name of the Lord. They become very offensive to people in the way they share. And they give the Lord a bad name. But all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Some kind. Whether it's from your family who don't agree with you. From certain uh, members of your circle that you're involved in. Of friends who laugh at you. But you will be persecuted if you live a godly life. Jesus said, beware if all men speak well of you. You can tell a lot about a person by his enemies as well as his friends. Thank God for the enemies you have, if they're the right ones. When people take pot shots at me, I kind of look at who it is, and I actually thank God for the ones doing it. I consider the source and say, thank you, Lord. Coming from them, that's a compliment. They didn't change their convictions at all. Verse 24 is something that just stood out to me this morning. When the high priest, the captain of the temple, here's the big wig of the Jews, and the chief priests, the associate big wigs, heard these things, I love this, they wondered what the outcome would be. They wondered what the outcome would be. Do you remember when Jesus was alive, reading the Gospels, that there was an attempt to quench this movement of God? When Jesus died on the cross, members of this council approached Pilate, and they were afraid of this resurrection idea. They said, oh, Pilate, we heard this deceiver say while he was alive that after three days he would rise from the dead now. It's ridiculous. However, give us a lot of men to guard the tomb. Just in case the disciples steal the body and the last deception will be worse than the first. So Pilate said, here, take a guard, make it as secure as you know how. Now get out of here. And they did it. Jesus rose from the dead. People started telling other people in Jerusalem, he's alive. And to use the, their own words, the last deception was worse than the first. It wasn't a deception, of course. The movement grew and grew. It was out of their control. And then we read in the book of Acts chapter 3, the man at the gate beautiful was healed. 
He was walking around the temple, jumping and leaping and praising God. What happened? These disciples were brought before the Sanhedrin again. And they said, we command you not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus Christ. Do you remember Peter's response? Peter said, now listen, whether it is right to obey you more than God, you figure that out. But we cannot but speak the things which we have heard and seen. And they went right back out and they did it again. The miracles continued. They were brought before these guys again. They were put into prison and angels sprung them. Now these chief priests, after all of that, trying to quench the movement, but the movement growing bigger and out of their control, now the chief priest says in his mind, what will the outcome be? What will be the result of this movement? I'll tell you what the result, I'll tell you what the outcome will be. Something much bigger than they ever imagined. Something completely unstoppable. Something that would take the world by storm. If you could look back and place yourself in the perspective of this chief priest, wondering, what will the outcome be? And then going all the way up to the year 1990. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Encyclopedia Britannica said that Christianity is the largest religious movement in the history of the world, that there are over one billion Christians alive today. This tiny band of disciples exploded into a larger group and a larger group. Even though the Jews tried to stop it, the gospel went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to Syria to Ethiopia, northern Africa, all the way up to Asia Minor and finally to Rome. In the midst of opposition, it grew. That's what the outcome was. Then the gospel went to Rome. And when the Christians went to Rome, they faced the opposition of persecution because the Romans worshipped Caesar and the Christians didn't. And there was a law that said once a year you have to pay homage to Caesar and say Caesar is Lord. And the Christian says, no way. Jesus is Lord. Forget Caesar. Well, they got killed for it. Ten million of them got killed for it. And they were tortured and persecuted. What happened to the church? What was the outcome? Did they die off? No, they grew bigger. The more persecution, the bigger they grew. Then as time went on, there was the conflict of heresies. The Gnostics, many other groups, with all sorts of garbage doctrine, trying to infiltrate the church. What happened? Did the church die off? No, it grew stronger. They got together and said, this is what the Bible teaches, and those people are cultists and heretics. And the church narrowed its focus biblically, and it grew stronger through all of the conflicts. Then as time went on, there was the conflict of corruption. Where pretty soon, through all of the traditions and rituals brought into the church, people started selling indulgences for a large sum of money. You could, with a large sum of money, buy yourself out of purgatory. In fact, relics of the saints were brought into the streets of Rome. And if you paid enough money, you could see them. And if you saw the relics of these dead saints, they'd guarantee you two million years of purgatory. Kind of a good deal. But in the midst of that conflict of corruption, did the church die off and become totally anemic? No. God raised up a bold theologian named Martin Luther who wrote down what he saw wrong 
as he compared their teachings with the Bible and he nailed them to the Wittenberg door and a new movement swept through Europe called the Great Reformation. What will the outcome be? What will be the result of these Christians? They're out of control. They're out of prison. Through all of the conflicts, they grew stronger. Well, even after the Great Reformation, there was the conflict of apathy where the Protestants started being smug in their doctrine and dead in their doctrine and practice. And God raised up a guy by the name of Count Zinzendorf who inspired the Moravians with a missionary zeal to go preach the gospel to every living creature. It was his messages that inspired John Wesley in England who rode 5,000 miles a year on horseback to preach the gospel. And Jonathan Edwards to preach the gospel in the United States of America. What will the outcome be? Let me sum it up like this. In the year 1900, 7.5% of the African population were considered Christians. Nominal as well as evangelical. Today, 33% are believers. It's estimated by the year 2000, 50% will be believers, will be Christians. In South America, the birth rate annually is 3%. The born-again rate is 10%. They're getting saved quicker than they're being born. In Korea, at the turn of the century, there were no registered Christians in any kind of movement at all. From that today, 10% of the entire nation is considered Christian. It is estimated that every single day, 70,000 People in the world make a commitment to follow Jesus Christ. And every single day, three, or excuse me, every week, 3,000 new churches open their doors. 3,000 new churches are planted. What will the outcome be? Something totally out of your control, chief priest. A movement that you can't stop even though you want to stop it. Because every time you persecute these people, God gets them out. And they preach. Kill them, more will be raised up. Kill them, more will be raised up. Persecute them, God will raise up more. Now, I want to be a part of that movement, don't you? I don't ever want to sit on the sideline and think, oh, God's doing a great work. Go at it. I want to be part of it. I want to be part of that outcome of the Holy Spirit moving in these days. I believe we're in the last days. Even if we're not in the last days, we have a generation of people who needs to be one for Jesus Christ. And Billy Graham once said, God will not hold us responsible for the past generations or the future generations, but He will hold us responsible if we have reached this generation with the gospel or not. And I believe that's right. Jesus told us to go out into all the world. Now we've got radio, we've got television, we have books, we have tapes. Let's use them. All the available means to share the gospel with every living creature. They wondered what the outcome would be. Then one of them came and told them, Look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple and they're teaching the people. What would the outcome be? I'm sure the chief priest is just wagging his head going, Oh, mercy. Now what do we do? And the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence. You want to know why? For they feared the people lest they should be stoned. There's so many people following the Lord and listening to the teaching of the apostles that if they were to raise a ruckus with them, 
they might personally be stoned. And so they were very nice about it. Hi, we'd just like to have a little chat with you boys. Come on in. And when they brought them, they set them before the council. And the chief priests, or the high priests, asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? Isn't it interesting that they wouldn't even mention Jesus' name? Just this name. And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. I'm sure Peter and John were going, hot dog, under their breath. Did you hear that? We filled Jerusalem with our doctrine. That's pretty good news. Now, the high priest meant that as a chop. I'm sure it was a compliment to the apostles. Wouldn't it be wonderful if somebody came in and said, you filled Albuquerque with your doctrine. All right. We've been trying to do that for a long time now. Thank you very much. That's a compliment coming from you. And intend to bring this man's blood on us. Just by that indictment, they were admitting that the church was doing its job. Because people were coming to know the Lord. You know, there's an interesting scripture in the book of Psalms that says, even the wrath of man shall praise you. God was using this even for his glory. I find that interesting. They got really upset in verse 28, saying as if they had no part of it, saying, you intend to bring this man's blood on us? I find that interesting because in the Gospels, when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, Pilate wanted to release Jesus. He knew he was innocent. He said, I find no fault in this man. Let him go. But it says that the chief priests, the council, spoke to the multitudes and persuaded them to release Barabbas instead of Jesus. And so they shouted Barabbas because the chief priest said, Say Barabbas, say Barabbas. Everybody said, Barabbas, release Barabbas. And Pilate said, what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? You remember their cry. Crucify him. Crucify him. He said, I find no fault with this man. He walked over, publicly washed his hands in a basement. You remember what he said? He said, I am innocent from the blood of this just person. And then the chief priest shouted out, his blood be on us and on our children. And now they're complaining because they got what they asked for. In one breath, they say, His blood be on us. And now they say, You intend to bring this man's blood on us? Yeah, because you ask for it. You signed the contract a few months ago, now you're trying to get out of it, aren't you? You said, Crucify him and his blood be upon us. And you know what happened? A few years after this incident in the book of Acts, 70 A.D., their wish was fulfilled. The blood was upon them and their own children as a fulfillment of a prediction that Jesus made. The Romans came in and surrounded Jerusalem and killed many of the Jewish people, took them away captive, destroyed their temple and their nation. Jesus predicted it would happen because they failed to recognize Him as their Messiah. His blood be on us and our children. All right. If that's your choice, that's what you get. But now they're saying, look, you're trying to bring His blood on us? And Peter and the other apostles answered in verse 29 and said, I love this, we ought, or literally we must, obey God rather than men. That ought to be your motto. What is God's will for my life? 
And it should be the central thing you live for. We ought to obey God rather than men. You know, something I try to constantly do with my son Nathan. He probably doesn't realize it. But when I pray with him every night, I pray that he will want to do God's will. I bring that phrase up a lot. Lord, help Nathan when he grows up, and even now, to want to do your will. So that he sees it's not just daddy and mommy's will, but there's a will of his heavenly father. And I want that ingrained in his mind. So that when he grows up, his foremost thought is, what does God want me to do? The will of God. I ought to obey God rather than men. Now, this is not a license to be rebellious or to protest against the government. The whole idea in this verse is that obedience to God is more important than obedience to anyone or anything else. This was the master principle of the early church. In other words, when God's will is ever in conflict with the government's will, with my parents' will, with my husband's will, or my wife's will, or my children's will, or my boss's will, I must obey God rather than men. That is the governing principle of my life. Now you see that little four-letter word in there? Obey. We must obey. That's a rare word. It's only used four times in the New Testament. It means to obey absolutely, unquestioning, unquestioningly. Just like a slave would hop to it with his master. Dwight L. Moody said, a Christian that moves the world is a Christian that refuses to let the world move him. We must obey God rather than men. We had to write that over every temptation to compromise. I must obey God rather than men. Remember it says in Romans 12, be not conformed to this world, but what? Transform means change as God renews your mind. I love the Phillips translation of that verse. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. But let God change you and change the way you think that you might know to do the perfect and acceptable will of God. The greatest danger in the church is not opposition in the form of persecution. Because any time, as we've said before, there was persecution, the church was made stronger, was made more pure. John MacArthur, I've heard him say, I'm praying for persecution in America. Because I know if one thing is going to purify us, it's going to be persecution. Never really hurt us. What really hurt the church is when we became paralyzed with compromise. Must obey God. In your family, you must obey God rather than men. When I was first a Christian, I had a conflict with my parents. They told me not to read the Bible, not to go to church. And I said, well, I'm sorry. As much as I love you and I'm told to obey you and respect you, and I will do that, I must obey God rather than men. If it means reading the Bible or not reading the Bible as a criterion for me living here, then I will leave. I'll get some place to live, but I must obey God rather than men. In marriage, you must obey God rather than men. A woman came up to me one time and she said, my husband is telling me, he's not a believer, he's telling me to go to parties with him and go to the bars with him. He's not a Christian, but he knows one verse in the Bible. I said, I bet I know, I bet it's in Ephesians 5. Submit to your husbands in all things. It's amazing how many men have memorized that in several translations. They know Greek, they know Aramaic, they know the whole deal. 
And so he threw that out at her. And I said, you tell him, forget it. You must obey God rather than men. He was saying, don't go to church, go to bars. And if you're going to be a Christian woman, then you have to submit to your husband. I said, you don't have to submit to that. You submit to Him and love Him and do everything you can to please Him and to show the love of Christ to Him, go overboard, but don't compromise your principles when it comes to obedience to Christ. At work, you are tempted to compromise and obey men rather than God. I've heard some of your stories. They've been, I should let you tell them at this point. Some of them are pretty amazing. I'll never forget when I was working at one hospital in California. I would pass little tracks out. I would try to do the best job of anybody on my crew so that they could never get me for doing a lousy job. I tried to work extra and work really hard. And I noticed that people would put up signs that said, uh, you know, party, get trash, bring your own booze, get loaded. And they would pass out little flyers and little tracks, if you will, to all these parties. They'd also pass around garbage literature. My boss came to me one day and said, I'm sorry, I cannot have you pass out these Christian tracts anymore and put up this literature on the bulletin board of coming to Christian concerts. I said, well, you know what? I appreciate that, but as long as you're going to put up that stuff, I have the right to do that. And I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do my job better than anyone in this hospital, but I am going to preach the gospel. And I have the right to do that. When it interferes with my job, hey, you fire me. But if I'm doing a good job and you guys are telling everybody to get trash and read pornography and you're telling me I can't pass out stuff about new life and Jesus, uh-uh, doesn't work. It'd be different if nobody was passing anything out and there became sort of a litter law in the department, but that wasn't the case. I would understand if it was the case. At school, you're tempted to compromise, aren't you? Especially when the teacher calls on you, knowing you're a Christian, and tries to humiliate you. No prayer in school. Hey, listen. As long as there are tests to take, there will always be prayer in school. All right? And you go ahead and have a good fellowship with the Lord anytime you want to during school. Because it's a part of your life. Notice the next few verses. The message didn't change. The God of our fathers, verse 30, raised up Jesus whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to the right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are His witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those that obey Him. The message didn't change. In fact, they say Jesus not only rose from the dead, but He's at a very special place. Now, I'd like every Christian in this room to listen carefully. I was thinking about this truth today. The fact that Jesus not only rose from the dead, but they make a big deal that He's seated at the right hand of God. You know that that is a pivotal doctrine in the New Testament? I was finding out today how many references they are to the fact that Jesus died, rose, and is seated at the right hand of God. He predicted it. It said in the book, in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, in Romans, it says Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. And that to me, I've discovered, is one of the most transforming truths, and I'll tell you why. Jesus said, unless I go away, I cannot send the Holy Spirit to you. 
And he said, the fact that I will, that the Holy Spirit will be sent, and you'll see all of these things happening that I predicted, will be proof that I am seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, when Jesus sat at the right hand of the Father, what that means is this. The right hand is a position of authority and honor and glory. Jesus Christ tonight is seated at the right hand of His Father. He's alive. Every bit as alive as when He walked the earth. From that vantage point, He is the head of His body, the church. And through the Holy Spirit, He conveys messages, just like the brain would convey messages to different parts of a physical body, telling it what to do. From the vantage point of the right hand of the Father, Jesus is communicating to different people all over the world in His body, telling them to do specific tasks to get the gospel preached. Unfortunately, not everyone picks up those messages, and the body of Christ is paralyzed in many cases. They're not getting the message. They're not functioning. They're not interested in getting the gospel message out. They're not interested in evangelism. They're not interested in building up the body. They're interested in their own little kingdom, their own little world, their own little comfort. And as soon as somebody does that, that's how much the body of Christ is paralyzed. But this doctrine is important to us because the Holy Spirit has been sent to accomplish His work through us. Remember, Jesus told his disciples, and we're going to be getting to this Sunday morning in the next few weeks. Jesus said, when I go, I'm going to send you the helper. Or in some translations, the comforter. In other translations, the counselor. It's a hard word to translate. It's the word parakletos. And this is what it means in expanded translation. One who is called alongside to stand by you constantly, who is ready to take part in everything in which his help is needed. Let me run that by you one more time. One who is called alongside to stand by you constantly, who is ready to take part in everything in which his help is needed. You know how great that is? I need all the help I can get. Because I find that it's very difficult to be a Christian. In fact, it's impossible if I try to do it on my own. I need someone who's called alongside, stationed next to me, and whenever I need him, he's there to help. We don't see Jesus physically today. Sometimes you pray and you wonder, is there a God who really hears my prayers? Well, even though Jesus has passed from the scene, He has sent the Holy Spirit who can now work through you in an incredible capacity, something the early disciples before this happened could never do, something the people in the Old Testament could ever do. In fact, Jesus, listen, Jesus thought it was more important for the Holy Spirit to be with him than he personally to be with him. I bet if we heard personally Jesus say these words, we might not believe them. Jesus said to his disciples, it is to your advantage that I go away. And they probably thought, what? It's to my advantage that you go away? Hey, haven't you ever thought the greatest possible thing is to physically be with Jesus, the master of every situation? You run into a problem? Jesus, I need help. He's right there. But Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away because if I don't go away, I cannot send the helper. If I go, I will send him and he will be teaching you all truth. He will be with you always. 
and greater things shall you do than what I have done. Wow. That truth ought to transform the way we think when we get up in the morning. He's constantly at my side. I have, I admit, forgotten that truth many times. Jesus isn't with me on purpose. He said, it's much better for me if He's out of here and the Holy Spirit is sent to every Christian indwelling Him. Now Jesus isn't localized somewhere in Jerusalem or in Galilee, but the Spirit of Christ is everywhere that there is a believer. And wherever you have Christians, wherever two or three gather, Jesus said, I'm in the midst of them. Power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 31, Him God exalted to the right hand to be Prince and Savior, to give repentance to Israel, forgiveness of sins, and we are His witnesses. You can put your name in that. You are His witness. You might be a good one or you might be a bad one, but you are His witness. Witnessing is never something you do. It's something you are. You reflect God to this world. Some of you brightly, some of you dimly, but you're all witnesses, self-included. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. Now, in steps a noted scholar named Gamaliel. And the next few verses, we'll run through them very quickly. Gamaliel comes in. He's an aged rabbi. Been around the block a few times. And he gives advice to the council. Now picture this. The council is made up of Sadducees. Gamaliel's a Pharisee. So there's a religious conflict already. However, all of the Sadducees love Gamaliel because he was not only a scholar, he was very temperate in his decisions, very well respected by all the Jews. In fact, when Gamaliel died, the man we're about to read, when he died, it was said, quote, when Rabbi Gamaliel the elder died, the glory of the law ceased and all purity died. That's how much respected he was. In fact, Paul the Apostle was tutored by Gamaliel. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel. In fact, it is recorded that Gamaliel said something very interesting of Paul. That Paul was one of those scholars that you just couldn't give enough books to. He was always asking for books. He was a voracious reader. He'd read everything. And he'd always ask for more literature. Gamaliel said we couldn't keep up with him. In the next few verses, he comes up with some very cool-sounding, temperate logic. But it's poor logic. Let's read on. When they heard this, they were furious, and they took counsel to kill them. They were emotionally distraught. However, one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. He said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined in. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. Now I say to you, keep away from these men. Let them alone, for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it. 
lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with them. When they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Logic sounds good, but it's wrong. Let me, he's not here to defend himself, but I'm going to poke holes at him anyway. Gamaliel classified Jesus with two rebels, Theudas and Judas, people who historically were known to hate the Romans, love the Jews, and create a band of people to follow him. They were rebels, they were insurrectionists, and they were squelched by the Roman government. Gamaliel, instead of examining the evidence for the resurrection, for the miracles that were happening, automatically classified Jesus with two rebels. However, did Judas or Theudas ever do the works that Jesus did? Did these guys ever raise dead people, turn water into wine, heal people? Did Judas or Theudas ever rise from the dead? No, he didn't examine the claims. He automatically stuck them in line with many other zealots. Second, he assumed that if something is not of God, it will fail. And that if it grows big, it's got to be of God and we can't resist him. Well, that's wrong. The test of truth is not success. If that were true, then we would hail Sun Myung Moon, the Mormon church, and Islam. All of them have grown. It's been amazing in their growth. But we wouldn't hail them as being right just because they grew. Success is not a test of the truth. In fact, Mark Twain once said, a lie runs around the world while truth is still putting on her shoes. You know, people will gravitate toward error quicker than they will toward truth. So it was a wrong assumption. The third wrong thing he said and suggested that neutrality is the best policy. Hey, let's leave them alone. Let's not hassle them. Let's be neutral. Let's be calm, cool, collected. Let's be neutral. Let's not be for them or against them. But this was a life and a death issue. The whole nation was at stake here, and neutrality is not the best policy. In fact, as you know, Jesus said it is impossible to be neutral regarding him. What did he say? If you're not for me, you're against me. If you don't help gather, then you scatter. In fact, being neutral is a quiet and cowardly way of making a decision to reject Jesus Christ. You don't want to come out and say it because you're too cowardly. And so you just say, well, I don't need to make a decision. I'm really not against Jesus, but I'm not going to really make a decision for him. Well, to be undecided is to be decided. Jesus said that. I find it really interesting that in the book of Revelation, toward the end, the first people mentioned in a list of those who are thrown into hell are the cowardly. Those who knew the truth but refused to make a stand for it. Gamaliel said, ah, let it ride. If it's of God, it'll stand. If not, it won't. If it's of God, it'll grow. If it's not, it'll fall. Now let's go on and read. Verse 40. They had beaten them. They commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing. That kind of blow your mind? They get beat up. All right. We got beat up. Isn't that great? They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. 
And daily in the temple and every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. These guys are unstoppable. They get beat up and they say, this is great, let's go for it. Let's do it again. You know what they did? I'm sure they didn't feel like rejoicing. But they obeyed Jesus. He said, when you are persecuted, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. You're in good company. They beat up prophets. They're going to kill me. They'll beat you up. Rejoice. You're in good company. Jesus said, behold, I send you a sheep in the midst of wolves. And you can expect some kind of opposition if you as a sheep get sent to a pack of wolves. Wolves like to eat up sheep. And Jesus said, when they start doing it, rejoice. For great is your reward in heaven. They thought, all right, we're getting some brownie points up there. We just got persecuted for the Lord's sake. We were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And they went at it again. And verse 42, you might take as a model for your own personal evangelism. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. First of all, they did it daily. They preached the gospel daily. You know, again, I quoted Dwight L. Moody. Let me quote him again. Dwight L. Moody was a great evangelist in Chicago. Great revival sprung up because of him. He was committed to leading souls to Christ. He was the one that really came up with the altar call in any form of notoriety. And people criticized him. Altar call, it's kind of crass. And one lady came up to Dwight L. Moody one time and was angry with him. She said, I don't like your methods of evangelism. He said, well, tell me yours. She goes, I don't do it. He said, I like mine better than yours then. <laughs> don't criticize me unless you're doing it better. Dwight L. Moody said that he wants to speak about spiritual matters to one soul every day. And he quoted as saying, I live for souls and for eternity. I want some soul to be one to Christ. Daily they preached. And notice, they did it in the temple. The temple was the place where the religious people came. They were very religious, but they didn't know Jesus. Some of your best witnessing can be in church. Because religious people go to church. And you might want to ask them about their soul, about their walk with Jesus. Not to intrude on them, but to be really concerned, wanting to disciple them, wanting to grow them up. Daily in the temple where the religious people gathered. And notice, in every house. Now what that means is, people not only had church in the temple as Jews, and they were in the temple until the Jews kicked them out. And Paul went to the synagogues in every city until they kicked them out. And so they started having church, not in formal church buildings, and it wasn't because they were down on church buildings. It was because they didn't have any, but they did have homes. So they started having church meetings in homes. And I think the point for us is, is to take Christianity outside the four walls and bring it into the home. And share the gospel with our family. Jesus told the young man who was demon-possessed that he healed. Go back home and tell your family all that I've done for you. And then you will notice that their witness involved teaching and preaching. And I think there needs to be a balance there, especially today. Preaching means to evangelize. That's where we get the word evangelizo or ezo, to preach or proclaim the gospel. We do that to unbelievers. You don't preach to believers. You preach to heathens. You proclaim the gospel to them. Once they're Christians, they don't need to be preached to. They need to be taught. 
There's Christians who every week have heard the same identical gospel message. And they're sitting thinking, you know, you're telling me to do this, this, and this. Give me tools to do it. Teach me. You need the balance of preaching the gospel once a person accepts the Lord to teach them. And then notice that they preached Jesus. Please take note of that. They preached Jesus. He was the center of their witness. They didn't argue religion with them. They didn't try to come down on the religious establishment. So, you know, your, your religious establishment stinks, man. They preached Jesus. I remember one time I had a conversation with a guy. I was thinking of moving to Colorado. It was one of the many times. I, I've almost moved, actually, every place in the planet Earth. But one time I was considering moving to Colorado, and it was especially in a place where false doctrine was being taught. And I was kind of all fired up to go attack the false doctrine. He said, don't do it. For the first six months to a year, just preach Jesus. Don't even touch that stuff. Remember, Paul said, I have determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. It was done by these apostles, by the early church, the disciples of Christ. One person in his book said, Jesus did not commit the gospel to an advertising agency, but he commissioned disciples to do it. Nothing can take the place of personal evangelism, of sharing your faith, of sharing the truth. Oh, but there'll be consequences. Great, more power to you. Then you too can rejoice that you're counted worthy to suffer for a shame. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that the gospel changes people's lives. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God and to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Thank you, Lord, that 2,000 years after this event, at least up to this point, we see what the outcome would be. As the chief priest wondered, what will be the result? And today we're 70,000 people daily make decisions to follow Jesus. What a wonderful outcome. We want to be a part of your move in the 1990s. Every one of us can do, can have a part. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd raise up those of us to go out into all the world locally here in our town. It's just as important as going anywhere else. But give us a heart, Father, for the lost world. And even if we're threatened and even if we suffer opposition, We will go out and daily proclaim. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.